Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogesville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. This is Stephen's defense. He has been arrested because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. People opposed it. They didn't like it. It uh, was undermining the grip and the, uh, the manipulative hold that they had on the people. Uh, so the religious leaders of the day took offense to what he was saying and the movement and the followers that were coming along to believe in Jesus, and so they arrested him. Same way they did Peter and John. And uh, they were interrogating him, and Scripture's already told us that Stephen was a deacon. He was a servant within the church. He was selected for the purpose of helping meet needs. But he was selected because he was a godly man, a man of good character. He was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of God's wisdom. He was full of grace and full of power. The Lord was performing through him wonders and signs, but he was also not just serving and helping people and uh, bringing food to the widows, but he was also preaching the gospel. He was telling people about Jesus, which is what God calls all believers to do, to testify of what God's done in our hearts. So they brought him along and people were growing angry and they asked him in chapter 7, verse 1, The high priest said, are these things so? They shared with him the accusations, and they looked at Stephen and said, are these things true? So the rest of the verses that we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through 53, are Stephen defending himself. It's his defense, him explaining why he says what he says. And I'd like to read those verses with you today and kind of walk through those together. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haram. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country, which You are now living, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Now, we remember this story pretty well. God calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to get your family and I want you to pack up and I want you to leave. And he didn't really tell him where they were supposed to go. He just told him to leave. And because Abraham had faith in God, he trusted God to take care of him and to provide for him. So they packed everything up, packed their family, their kids, and all their possessions, and they left. And Scripture says, Stephen's saying, they brought, God brought them eventually to this land that uh, the Israelites and the Jews were now living in, the promised land, the, the nation of Israel, the, the place of Israel that we now call Israel is Palestine. He brought them to this area. And to this place. But with that, God gave him a promise and God gave him a covenant. The promise was that that he would give to him as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. 
And at that point in time, Abraham did not have any kids and he was getting really old. He and his wife both were very old and they didn't have any kids. And God said, you're going to have so many descendants. They'll number, they'll outnumber the stars in the sky. Abraham trusted the Lord and held on to that promise. We know there's some more details to that story. They kind of didn't really trust in the Lord and they made some mistakes along the way. But God eventually did give him a son, Isaac. He gave him Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, and they began to multiply, and now the descendants of Israel continue today. That was the promise that they held on to, that God was going to take care of them, and then he gave them a covenant. He said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will take care of you, and I will provide for you, and you will obey me, and you will walk in my ways. Now, that promise wasn't given to all the nations of the world. That promise was given to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Now, the promise has been extended to all the world because of Jesus. Because anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ can be added to this family, even if we're not of Jewish descent. So let's keep reading. That's the story that Stephen is reminding them of. In verse 5, he says, But he, being God, gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give, he would give to him as a possession, give it to him as a possession, and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in, bondage I will myself judge now what's that a picture of he says listen there's coming a day even though I'm going to send you and I'm going to give you this piece of land it's going to be yours your descendants are going to outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore and I have a covenant with you I'll protect you and take care of you he says there's coming a day when you will all be enslaved and you're going to be slaves for 400 years now that doesn't sound like a really nice promise does it coming from a God who promised to take care of them But it's important to remember that these stories are not just chance stories. It's also important to note that God knew this beforehand and God planned it. This is God's sovereignty at work. So why would God plan to send his favorite people into slavery for 400 years? Well, it's not an accident. And these people, they had a hard time understanding why. They didn't know why God would allow them to do this, but we can see the broader picture because we have all of God's word and we know Christ. The broader picture is that the slavery that they endured symbolized the slavery of sin that we are all born into. And when God sent a deliverer and a savior to rescue them from that slavery through the blood of a lamb, sacrificed and painted on a doorpost, and then sent them out in freedom, all of that was symbolic of our salvation in Jesus Christ, a picture of deliverance. God was preaching to them through their life experiences of their Savior and Him being their provider and the Most High. All along, even though they were in slavery, they were never abandoned by God. God took care of them. So let's keep reading the story. He says... This day is coming, but, verse 7, God said he will judge the nation 
that will enslave them. So there will be judgment. There will be justice for that particular nation. We know that nation was Egypt. Verse 8, and he gave him a covenant of circumcision. Now, circumcision was an outward sign. It was a symbol uh, that set the people apart, showed them to be different. It simply meant that they were cut off from this world and set apart from God. They were set apart to be God's people. So everyone who was one of God's people was supposed to be circumcised as a sign. So then when Isaac was born, they circumcised him on the eighth day. But we'll learn about circumcision in Scripture. The Jews, they held on to that, that outward sign. And they believed that because they had that outward sign, that made them God's people. But the problem is they missed what it symbolized. It was a picture of a heart that was to be devoted to the Most High God. A heart, a person who had turned away from the sins of this world and was living by faith in our Savior and our Lord and our God. They missed the heart of the circumcision and they held on to the outward appearance of the religion. But that was part of what God told them to do. And so then it says in verse 8 that um, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now, who are the 12 patriarchs? I'm just going to give you the list of those. There was a day when I could have rattled them off really quickly, but I'll probably miss one if I try to say it from memory. So I'm just going to read it. Um, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad and Asher. Those were the 12 tribes, uh, or the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. That's why these people became called the Israelites. You'll notice a couple of names in there that might sound familiar, like Judah, uh, the nation of Israel out under Solomon. Uh, because of sins of David, there was division in the kingdom. And under Solomon, Solomon the nation of Israel was cut in half. So you had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and eventually they fell to um, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and um, they were defeated. But the people of Israel became known as the Judeans or Jews. And that's where we get these names. Maybe you've heard those around before. Jews, Israel, they come from these people. Uh, Jacob was Israel. Anyways, uh, you also notice Joseph. Joseph is somebody that we know very well, and Stephen tells us a little bit about Joseph. Now, when we think about the 12 tribes, I'm just going to add this in there as well. Um, all the tribes were given a piece of land in the promised land, um, with the exception of the Levites. Uh, Levi um, was one of the sons of Jacob, but they were called, his family, he and his family were called to be the priests. So they were divided up and spread out among all the other tribes. So they didn't get a piece of land. Neither did the Benjaminites. Benjamin was one of the sons of Jacob, but he and his family became ex exceedingly wicked and did some really horrible things. And so the brothers rose up and destroyed them. And all that were left were kind of absorbed into the rest of the families. So they didn't get a piece of land. But Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So those two boys got the other two pieces of land. So there were still 12 pieces of land. 12 tribes of Israel, um, and that's just some details that 
aren't necessarily pertinent, but I thought they might be interesting for you to think about. All right, so Stephen is preaching the story about the history of God's people. He's taking them on a journey. He's telling them, well, you know this story. I know this story. They were accusing him of blaspheming God and not believing in this story. And so by preaching it, he's saying, I wholeheartedly believe our heritage and our history. These things that you also say that you believe. And so he's preaching these things. So we have the 12 patriarchs. And then in verse 9 of chapter 7, it says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. So remember the 12 brothers? They all got jealous. They became jealous of Joseph. He was kind of a special kid. Uh, Abraham seemed to like him a little more than everybody else. Maybe there was some favoritism there. Um, Why that was, it's kind of hard to put your finger on. Maybe Abraham was a flawed father just like all fathers are. You know, he made a lot of mistakes. Maybe he showed a little too much favoritism in his son. But maybe it was also by design because God had a plan. God knew that his people were going to suffer in famine and God needed to set up a rescue, a deliverer for them. And God had chosen from among those 12, one of those boys who was going to help deliver that family from their trouble. So the boys in their jealousy and in their envy and in their, in their pride, they schemed a plan to sell their brother into slavery. Some brothers, right? Right? So they... Uh, um, they threw him in a hole. They were going to kill him to start with. So, you know, a little mercy. One of their brothers came and said, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. And, uh, but rather than saying, hey, this whole thing is bad. Let's stop treating our brother this way. They said, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. So whichever brother helped him out still wasn't a great brother. All right. So they found some merchants and they sold him into slavery and they killed an animal and put the blood all over his clothes and took it home and showed his dad and said, an animal killed your son. So some pretty sorry kids, I got to say. So, um, children, I just encourage you in the room to please don't treat your siblings this way and don't, don't lie to your parents and tell them that an animal killed one of your siblings when they're not really dead. All right. So a lot of grief came to, to, um, uh, Jacob as a result of this, as well as Joseph. So they became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt yet, look at verse nine, yet God was with him. And here's something to remember as believers. God is with us. Verse 10, it says, He rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. So he was sold into slavery, but he was purchased by the king, by Pharaoh, and he wound up being a prince. So he went from being a slave to being a prince of Egypt, something that his brothers didn't anticipate. If they had known, hey, you know, selling our brother into slavery is going to wind up making him the prince of Egypt. They, they might, one of those might have volunteered to go into slavery if that was the case. But they didn't know what had happened to him after that. And Joseph didn't know why he was in that circumstance, but he trusted in God by faith. The Lord led him through. And I think as an encouragement to us, as the people of God, God is with us. God has a plan. God rescues us from our afflictions and he grants us favor and he grants us wisdom through our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
God is with us. That's something that we can hold on to. Now, in verse 11, it says, A famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with them, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. So a famine came. People were hungry. Uh, Jacob and um, I mean, yes, Jacob and his sons and uh, and their families were all really hungry and they didn't have food to eat. So he sent his sons out looking for food and they journeyed as far as Egypt. And when they came to Egypt, they found Joseph, but they didn't recognize him. And they asked for food and Jacob, Jacob recognized them, but he didn't disclose who he was at first. The second time, on their second visit, he disclosed who he was, but he provided food for them, and he delivered them, and he saved them. He became their deliverer. God sent Joseph for the purpose of saving that family. God chose a deliverer to bring salvation to his people. So we see this, uh, through, we see this become a pattern throughout scripture where the people become uh, enslaved and then they or they become distressed and then God provides a deliverer and a savior we see this pattern begin to develop so Joseph becomes this deliverer look at verse 14 then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him 75 persons and all So he invited the entire family to come to Egypt. Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and his fathers died. So that means some time passed, so they lived in Egypt. Jacob died, and his fathers died. Um, From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured Abraham, as the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased in number and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. Basically, they lived in Egypt they multiplied, Joseph died, and the king died that loved him and that loved those people. And a new king came. People continued to multiply. And the new king became afraid that these slaves or that these people would rise up and overthrow the Egyptians. So he made them slaves so that he could keep them under control. And while they were there, a little baby was born, but this was during a time when the king was having all of the children destroyed, killed, and uh, he commanded the midwives to kill these babies. But there was one mother who chose to rescue her son, so she put him in a basket, and she covered it with pitch, and she put it in the river and sent it down the river in hopes that somebody, God, would bring this baby to somebody who could save it. But God had a plan for that baby. The uh, daughter 
the Pharaoh found that child in the river, rescued him, and raised him as a son in the Egyptian Egyptian Pharaoh's house. This is what it says in verse 19. Verse 20. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So he grew up. He learns that his actual lineage is Hebrew. He learned that he was one of the Israelite slaves. He wasn't actually an Egyptian. So he goes outside and he sees one of his people being beaten as a slave. And so he goes to the guard and he beats him and he kills him, thinking that this will win favor among his people and they will consider him a hero, maybe a deliverer, somebody who would rescue them from their situation. But they didn't see it that way. He came out the next day and he found them fighting and he said, men, why are you fighting against each other, your brothers? And they said, who are you to judge us? Who made you ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the other guy? And then he realized that uh, he was in trouble. So he, he left and he ran away and he, was, he went to hiding. But the Lord found him there. The Lord knew he was there. The Lord sent him there. And uh, he got married and he had kids while he was in the uh, wilderness. And, and uh, then the Lord had a plan for him. So he, uh, he then saw God on a mountainside in a bush that was burning but not burning up. It was on fire but was not burning away. And the Lord spoke to him. This is what it says in verse 30. After 40 years passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, from the place on which you are standing is holy, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Now, that's kind of the story of Moses. So we've heard about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel, Joseph, and now Moses. 
The people of Israel, God loves. He's promised to take care of them. He has a covenant with them, but they are enslaved. Now they are in Egypt as slaves, just as God promised would happen. And they wound up being slaves there for 400 years, but God said, the time has come for you to be delivered from this slavery. So he called Moses out in the desert, and he appeared to him. And he says, Moses, you're going to be the one that I've chosen to deliver these people. This is very much like what our Savior Jesus has done for us. He came to save us, to deliver us from the slavery of our sins. But what I'd like to do with the remainder of these verses is focus also on, because the rest of this is about Moses, a lot of it's about Moses, a little bit about, the, about Joshua and David, but I'd like to focus a little bit about, on the people of Israel, because I think this is the point that Stephen is making when he's preaching this. He's not trying to show them again the patriarchs and what they did. He's not really trying to teach them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph and Moses and David and Joshua, he's trying to teach them about the people and how the people followed these men and how the people responded when they came to deliver them and how the people responded when they came to save them. You see, David, excuse me, Joseph, he was disowned by his family. He was rejected, but he became the deliverer. Moses was disowned but he became the deliverer. Mm -hmm. Jesus was disowned, mm -hmm. but he is the deliverer. And Stephen is making that connection for these people, saying, you disowned your savior just like they did. They disowned Joseph, they disowned Moses, you disowned Jesus. And he's bringing the connect, he's tying the, um, the he's connecting the dots for these people. And uh, so I want you to kind of see how the people respond to this. They disown Moses. Look at verse 35. Um, well, before we move on to that, I would like to just point out for the believers in the room, just something encouraging about Moses. You know, when he sees, um, when he sees God in the desert and after striking this man down and being cast out into slave or cast out into the wilderness, um, it is a reminder, though, that, you know, the patriarchs, these men are just men. They're not necessarily people for us to emulate. Like we read the Bible and you read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, um, and you look at these people and think about their lives and say, maybe I should be like that. Well, there's a lot of things about their lives we should not be like. But scripture, I think, instead is pointing us to a God who is leading us through these sinful human beings which is an encouragement to us that we are sinful people just like they were who've been saved by, um, by the grace of God just like they were by the favor of God. And we know God because of his grace, and we should rejoice in that as sinful people, not because we're good and not because we deserve it. God has delivered us. So we've seen the goodness, and we've seen, uh, we've seen grace not because of our good deeds. But here, we also see Moses in the desert meeting God. We see a God who is holy, who has called his people to holiness. And he called Moses to holiness. And he's calling us to holiness. We have a holy God who calls us to, holy, holy, um, to his holiness and out of the unholiness of this world. But he also sees our opposition. He hears our cries and he comes to rescue us. 
We have a God who sees us, he hears us, and he desires to rescue us from our oppression. So when you read scripture and you see some of these things that seem horrible and you look around at life today and you see all the, th- the atrocities that are allowed to continue and you wonder, where is God? It's good to remember that God is still holy. God is still good. He hears our cries. He sees our cries and he sees our suffering and he will deliver us. He has delivered us from our sin, the worst part of life that we have to face, our sinful um, bondage he's delivered us from. And the rest of life's sufferings are trivial next to the consequences of sin. But God is going to deliver us from those as well. That we look forward to that day. So as believers, rejoice in that. But look at how the people responded to this salvation. Verse 35, Moses, whom they disowned, There it is. So Stephen is pointing out to them. They disown him saying, who made you a ruler and judge? Well, who did make Moses the ruler and the judge over the people? It was God. He said, who made you a ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So he was saying that, um, that, You ask the question, who made you ruler and judge over us? But God actually made him ruler and judge. God made him the deliverer. They they could ask the same thing about Jesus. And we still ask, people today still ask the same thing. Who makes you ruler and judge over me and my life? What gives you the right to speak into my life and to tell me how to live and to tell me what's right and to tell me what's wrong and to tell me what should be done and shouldn't be done. It's my life. I can live it however I want. What gives you the right? And God is saying he is the one who gave him the right. Christ came with the authority to show us right from wrong, just like Moses did as the Lord sent him to bring the delivery, to be the delivery device of the law of God and to be the salvation for the people of God. So uh, they, he, Stephen's pointing this out. And then in verse 36, he says, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. So you remember the wonders and signs of Moses. He goes into Egypt. There's Pharaoh. He's enslaved all the people. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So then God sends a plague. The plague uh, tortures the people for a certain amount of time. And then Moses goes back to him and said, that plague came from God. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So God sends another plague, number two. And uh, Moses goes back again and again and again, nine plagues. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. He says, listen, this, um, God's going to send another plague. And Moses says, fine. And so this time the Lord sent an angel to kill the firstborn of every household um, in that land. And the only way anyone could escape that punishment was if they took the blood of a pure spotless lamb and painted it on the doorpost of the house and their family stayed inside that night. And when the angel of death came through uh, that place, it was killing household, uh, going from household to household, killing children. And when it came to those homes that had the blood of the lamp painted on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over that house, meaning that because of the blood of that lamb, the people inside were saved from the judgment of God. And something to recognize is that when death comes to 
sinful people. It is not random. It's not constant. It's not just a random consequence of the world. It is the judgment of God for the sins of the world. That's the way it works. And so these people were facing the judgment of God again and again and again, but the only salvation that they found was in the blood of that lamb. And so the people of Israel heard this message and they obeyed God and they took the blood of the lamb, they painted it on their doorposts. And so God provided salvation for those who believed by faith that God would protect them. And so God saved them. But all the other households, including the Pharaohs, they lost children. The Pharaoh in his grief got up the next day and he commanded that they leave. Get your stuff and get out of here. And so the Egyptians, they plundered. They took everything that they could get, and they left. The Pharaoh had a change of heart. Well, not really a change of heart. He just became more angry after telling them to leave. And so he gathered up all the chariots and all of his armies and sent them out into the desert after the people of God to kill them all in the desert. But what did God do? He led them at night with a pillar of fire to light their way. And he led them during the daytime with a pillar of cloud so that they could see which way they were. God was leading them through the desert. But God led them right up against an ocean. How in the world were they going to pass? God didn't do that by accident. It's not as if God didn't know the ocean was there, leading them by this pillar of cloud by day and go, oh, sorry guys, I took the wrong route. You know, he, he was planning to demonstrate to his people yet again his awesome and magnificent power. And as the army was drawing closer, God moved the pillar of fire behind them to stand between the enemy and his people. So God protected them, standing, be- standing between their opposition. And then God commanded Moses to raise his hands and his staff, and he stood there uh, on the side of the ocean and uh, the Red Sea, and it, the Lord parted the Red Sea to the extent that the ground at the bottom was dry when they walked across. And so all of the people of God walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. And, as, and then the Lord removed the pillar of fire and the army of the Egyptians went into the river or went into the sea on dry ground to start with in hopes of catching them. But once the last Israelite made it to the other side of the sea, the Lord caused the ocean to collapse, crushing the entire Egyptian army and killing them. The judgment of God. Now you say, that's pretty severe. That's pretty intense. Unfortunately, I think maybe we don't realize it, but our sin causes us to face the same judgment, the same wrath. But the Lord has provided salvation through Jesus. He's provided hope. Stephen's preaching that message. He's saying, God gave you this. How are you going to respond to that? In verse 38, it says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking with him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers. And he received the living oracles to pass on to you. So after they got to the other side of the Red Sea, they were wandering in the desert and the Lord called them up onto Mount Sinai. And what did the Lord do with Moses on Mount Sinai? He gave him the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and told and commanded him to bring it down to the people and instruct the people. God said, instruct my people to live according to these ways. This is my holiness. This is a reflection of my holiness. Live this way. Walk in my ways. As soon as Moses came down to the bottom of the mountain, after immediately receiving the law of God, what did he find? 
The people had already gathered together their gold rings and their jewelry, and they melted it together and had made a golden calf and were worshiping a piece of gold as if the gold was their savior. And Moses had a little temper tantrum, and he threw the Ten Commandments carved on rock by the finger of God onto the ground and broke them. All right? sounds very much like something that we've seen all of our children do when they get angry. They throw something down and break it and go, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know, or maybe we've done something like that. Moses did that. So he had to go back up onto the mountain and uh, get the instructions again and um, carve them into a rock himself the second time around. And, uh, and then, but the people were already struggling with rebellion. And in their heart, they were already desiring to go back to Egypt as they were struggling with hunger. But the Lord was providing for them. He gave them, he made quail fall out of the sky during the daytime so they could eat it. And when they woke up in the morning, this bread-like stuff was just laying on the ground. They could just pick it up and eat it. But the Lord wouldn't let it last for more than a day. It would rot because he wanted them to trust them every day. But only on the weekend he would let it last for more than a day. They were supposed to pick up a double portion on, uh, on, uh, on the weekend so that because they weren't supposed to pick anything up, they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath day. So they would pick up a double portion, rest on the Sabbath day, and they would have enough food to last two days instead of just one. But all the other days of the week, it wouldn't last. This was God performing signs and wonders uh, among the desert through Moses and through these people, much like Jesus did when he came and he performed signs and wonders among all the people, demonstrating that he's God, attesting to the fact that he is speaking the truth. Moses, God is leading and, and performing signs and wonders through Moses so that God can show that he's with them and he is the one providing for them. God constantly saying, I am your God. Trust in me, follow me, obey me. And the people continually struggling to say, we want to go back to Egypt. I think maybe we had it better there than being out here in the desert. Already struggling with rebellion. Let's keep looking and seeing what happened. In verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They were complaining and wanting to go back to slavery. Isn't that how people continue to act? God provides salvation for the world, but people prefer to stay in slavery. It doesn't make any sense, but it is human nature. We like our sin. And even though we we feel the horrible pain of the consequences of our sin and we want out of it. Sometimes we get out of it and then we struggle or we forget or we become apathetic or complacent and we long for some of those same things that we had before that God set us free from. And believers are, not, are no exception to that rule. I think Christians um, are just as susceptible to the temptation to going back to the sin that we've been saved from. And this is a reminder that God has called us out of that. I think um, Scripture tells us, uh, um, if, if we, Scripture paints it vividly when he describes it as being like a dog returning to his vomit. When a believer has been rescued from sin but returns to it, it just doesn't make sense. And it's pretty gross. But this is what happens. At that time... They made a calf and brought sacrifices and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the hosts of the heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered 
victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the God of Ramphah and images with you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So basically saying all the sacrifices you performed in Egypt, they weren't to me. They were to false gods, your cows and and your stars and your um, your images and your things carved out of wood and your fake gods. You worshipped them. Even though I have set you free from Egypt, I gave you salvation. I parted the Red Sea for you. I gave you, I fed you every morning and every night, and I provided for you along the way. I rescued you from your enemies, yet you worship, you worship rocks and wood and things that I made. You're worshiping the created rather than the creator. And I think uh, Stephen is reminding them, hey, this is how the people treated their deliverers. God sent Moses to be their, God sent Joseph to be their deliverers. They were disowned, they were rejected, and God proved himself to be savior, but they continued to reject God. This has been the pattern of the people. It doesn't make God less God, but it does make us pretty bad. And it seems to not make a whole lot of common sense. So what's the point? Where's, where's he going with this? Verse 44 says this. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony. So God instructed them to build a little tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a special tabernacle. It was made out of special fabrics. And they, was, they were nomadic people. They were kind of homeless. They carried their stuff and their tents. And they traveled. And the temple of God was the same. So the presence of God dwelt among them, came to be with them. So that's another indication that God wants to be with his people. God likes to be present with his people and to, and to uh, be close to his people, leading his people. And he wanted his people to be able to come to him and to talk to him and to approach him. So he had them in, uh, instru- construct a tabernacle, but it had to be special because no one could just simply walk into the holy presence of God because we're all sinful we walk into the presence of holy God, we die. We can't stand in the presence of a holy God. So the tabernacle was designed to conceal the glory of God so that people could get close but not die. So it was a special process that the Lord used. And he he, uh, brought along the priests and the Levites to help with that. Anyways, verse 45, And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua, so remember Joshua, they finally came up to the Jordan River. They're going to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, Palestine, the land that God promised to give them. So they were in Palestine with Abraham. <clears throat> they were in Palestine with Abraham. Then they had to go to Egypt because they were hungry, became slaves in Egypt. But then God set them free and they wandered in the wilderness for, a long, for 40 years. They finally came all the way back up to the uh, Jordan River so they could cross over into their um, promised land. Joshua now leads the people into the promised land and comes right up against Jericho. They march around the city of Jericho. They didn't defeat Jericho by throwing rocks at it and burning it down and cutting off their water supply and their food supply and starving them out. They defeated them by marching around the city until God caused the walls to crash. But then God called Joshua and his armies to go all the way through the promised land and to clean out the sinful people so that the people of God could 
multiply. So there they uh, then came David. In verse 46, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. He wanted to build a permanent temple. And this is how God said, God responded. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And I think that's really important. God doesn't just dwell in a building that we make with our hands. God's not contained in bricks and mortar. But it also signifies that God desires to dwell in the hearts of men. He desires to dwell in our hearts. And we find that through the Holy Spirit and through the righteous one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So then he says this, But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So that was kind of the end of his sermon, of the story part of his sermon. He talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, the temple. Talked about the Most High God. Talked about the people of Israel and how they responded to all of that. And this is what he says to them as an application. He didn't say, I hope this encourages you in your faith. And he didn't say, I hope that you don't kill me for what I believe. This is what he said. Verse 51, you men, you men. Now this, the, the ones who put him on trial. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Now that was an insult. We don't, call, we don't say that to people as an insult anymore uncircumcised of heart people just be like what in the world are you talking about that's weird all right but uh they prided themselves in their outward show of religion or their or their um their uh um signal that they were part of god's people they were proud of their circumcision but he said i know that's kind of weird but that's, you have to read the bible to get a grip on why that's important but they were proud of that and he called them uncircumcised of heart you know so and he called them stiff-necked all right, so if you're on trial and you're trying to not be crucified, um, it's probably best to not go on insulting those who've arrested you and those who have put you on trial to find a way to peaceably. But he's not worried about that. He's worried that they understand the gospel. And he's worried that they make sure, and he's concerned to make sure that, he, that everyone knows that he is not blaspheming God he is not blaspheming the temple of God and the holiness of God and the law of Moses, that he believes it wholeheartedly, but he also believes that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all, of all of this. And in the same way that the people disowned Joseph and Moses, they've disowned Jesus the Nazarene. And in the same way that Joseph and Moses were set up to deliver the people temporarily, Jesus the Nazarene was the Christ who came to deliver people forever. No more need for any more man-made, uh, man-deliverers. We have a God who is our deliverer, Jesus Christ. He says, you men are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So of all of the history of the nation of Israel, he kind of pointed out the worst parts, other than God being there with them the whole time. He pointed out that the whole time the people were rebellious and stiff-necked and obstinate and uh, foolish, worshiping false gods instead of worshiping the God who became their deliverer. He pointed out all their flaws and said, you're just like that. 
you're doing exactly like they are. And I'd like to just go ahead, leapfrog this 2,000 years into the future. We may not be blood descendants of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but many people in our day are doing the exact same thing. They hear the story and the gospel of Jesus Christ and they reject it. Same way these people rejected the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Same way the Israelites rejected Moses. Same way they rejected Joseph. But it didn't change who God is. You can reject God all you want, but God's still God. You can reject God all you want, but God's still Savior. God's still Redeemer. God's still good. God's still holy, and he's still providing for us an opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. So this can go one of two ways. We can hear this gospel, and we can repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, or we can hear this gospel, and we can grow angry and violent and reject everything that we've just heard. And so let's see what comes next. It says this. I'm wrapping this up. Sorry this is taking so long. I've had to go a little slow today. He says this, verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So you want to talk about history. They're, they're calling up history, and they, they brought up the law of Moses, and they brought up the temple. He says, you want to talk history? Which one of the prophets of God, the people that God sent to you and your forefathers, did they not kill? God raised up men to be his voice, and he sent them to say, thus says the Lord God. God sent prophets. Um, I, he sent Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, all those guys, prophets to speak the words of God. And every one of them, they persecuted and they killed. He says, which one of these guys did you not kill? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And there it is. This whole story has been about the righteous one. Even the prophets of old, all the way back from, to Abraham, God was using to prophesy about the coming of the righteous one, the Savior the one who would lead them out to be delivered. He said, whose betrayers and murderers. So now who is the righteous one? It's Jesus. So they announced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, the Christ, whose murderers and betrayers you have now become. Now, Stephen's not making any friends at this point. All right. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, people resisting the Holy Spirit, which one of your fathers that you're so proud of did not persecute the prophets that, um, or which one of the pro prophets that you are so, that you love were not persecuted by the, the, the fathers that you are so proud of. You are also murderers and betrayers of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. You who received the law as ordained by angels. I mean, that's a reference to the law of Moses. He says, you love the law of Moses. You receive the law of Moses. Why didn't you hear it? Why didn't you obey it? Why didn't you follow? Why aren't you following it now? And yet you did not keep it, is what he says. And that's how he ends the sermon. Now, maybe there was more to it that um, Luke didn't completely write down, but it seems like that's how he ends his sermon. All right, so that's his, that's his message. That's his defense. He says, so what do you have to say for yourself? Well, let me tell you what I have to say for myself. I'm going to tell you the history of Israel. I'm going to tell you the true history. I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you who you are. And this may seem harsh, but the reality is until these, these people, they were believing a false religion. They were believing that their salvation was in their good deeds, was in their ability to follow their rules that they had set up. 
and in their circumcision. And until they realized that all of that was leading them to hell, they would never realize their need for a savior, a need to be forgiven. They needed to be told the truth. They needed to know that they needed Jesus. Now, some people heard this message. If you'll remember back in Acts chapter 2, Peter and John, they kind of preached the message almost exactly the same. And it's the people that heard it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That means they were wounded in their conscience. And what did it lead them to do? They were wounded in their heart, and it led them to say, what should we do about this? And that's what, when we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that's what it should lead us to do. We should be convicted in our hearts. It should pierce us to the heart, and we should say, okay, there's a problem. There's a problem with me, with my sin. But I see and I believe in this God of the Bible, and I believe that he came to be my Savior, and I believe that he sent Jesus Christ. What do I do about that? And the answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Cry out to the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, and you will be forgiven of your sins, and you'll be saved. You'll be in right relationship with God. You will be delivered from the bondage of your sins. That's the promise that God has held for you. But then there's another response. Verse 54, and I'm going to finish with this. The persecutors of Stephen, it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They were cut to the quick. And we'll read the rest of it next week. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. But that cut to the quick is a little different than pierced to the heart. It's different Greek. One means that they were convicted in their heart. It's a spiritual conviction that leads to repentance. It's softening of the heart that leads to grief. It's not anger. It's, it's sadness. It's a realization that I have, I have sinned against my, my God, my creator, the one who made me and loved me. He made me in his image. He loves me, and he sent his son to die for me, and I am sinning against him. I am living in rebellion against him. I'm living in opposition against him. And I'm, I'm stricken in my heart with grief about that. And it makes me hunger and desperate for something different, for a change, for forgiveness, so that I can be at peace with my creator, so that I can be at peace with my God. That's one response. But the other response was to be cut to the, was to be cut to the quick, That word actually is partnered with another Greek word, which means to be cut in half. It means it's an extremely painful. They were were pierced to their heart, but the response was different. They were cut in such a way that they became angry and they became hateful and they responded with a vehement desire to make it stop. I don't want to hear any more words coming out of your mouth. I don't want to hear anything else you have to say. It's making me angry. Please be quiet. And because in all the opportunities that they've had previously with Peter and John and now Stephen, they, could, they knew that they weren't going to be able to make these people be quiet. Their response was violence. And they didn't just, this time they didn't just beat Stephen and send him out. They didn't just warn him and tell him to go and not speak these things again. This time they took him out and they killed him. And we'll read about that next week. So the story here is a long defense of Stephen. Really neat kind of a recap of the whole Bible. And I could have just read that this morning. But I really, I think it's, 
it's exciting sometimes to go back and just look back through at the entire, the big picture story of the Bible and see what God's done for us. So for the believers in the room, I'm inviting you to rejoice. This is your story. This is our story. This is our heritage. This is our family. God's led, this is our, our family history. God's connected us with this. Rejoice in this. God is with us. God has rescued us. God's granted us favor. God's granted us wisdom. He comes to us even though we are sinful like Moses. And he saves us by grace, not because of our good deeds. Praise the Lord for that. I praise the Lord for that every day, that his mercies are new every morning and that I'm saved by grace, not by my goodness. God is holy and he's called us to holiness. Praise the Lord for his holiness, but see and hear his call to that holiness, to live in that holiness. God sees our opposition and he sees our hurts and he sees our struggles and he hears our cries. Rejoice in that. Remember that. That's who our God is. I think as, I, as we prayed earlier, sometimes we go through the depths. It's good to be reminded that God hears our cries. That the God that we have today is the same God that they had then. And I just invite you that um, you see in the story, there's, there's three characters that stand out the most. The Most High, our Father in Heaven, the Holy Spirit, whom they kept resisting, but we have not. The Spirit dwells in our hearts. And the Righteous One, our Savior Jesus Christ, who died to pay the price for our sins, the Lamb of God. Rejoice that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are with us and dwell in our hearts by faith. I encourage you to rejoice in that. And if you're, if you're struggling with your relationship with the Lord, Chances are um, the story of Jesus is going to do one of two things in your heart. It's going to make you angry, make you just ready to get out of here, or it's going to cause you to start feeling grief because of your sinfulness. And if you're realizing that you are a sinner and you're grieving because, you've, because God created you and he loves you and you're in rebellion against him, I encourage you. Cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, and he promises to forgive. So as we pray this morning, I invite you to reflect on those things, and then we'll sing together. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24-26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.